If everyone can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13. And why don't we stand and read the word. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray as a church. Lord, we uh, knew from the introduction of First Peter uh, about a month ago that this letter was full of instruction for us and was very practical to the situations we are facing in this world in this time. We pray, God, that these truths uh, ring out today um, in a very strong way so that we understand where we stand uh, from your point of view as Christians in this world and how we are to live and think differently than what, maybe what we were accustomed to when we, before we knew you and maybe even through the th- some of the things we're struggling now where we might be sort of double-minded and that we're committed to the world and also committed to Christianity at the same time. May this uh, message today be a way of straightening us out and getting us on the right track in terms of our thinking and the way we conduct our lives. We look forward to our time together and may your spirit uh, guide all of us, including myself, into truth as we spend our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning as we continue in our series in 1 Peter. And let me just start off by saying this. How we live matters to God. How we live matters to God. How you and I conduct ourselves in this world here and now is important. This is at the heart of Peter's message to us today, as it was to his readers back then. And actually, so much so was his concern for our, our conduct and the way we think and live out our lives that he, he gives a, a many descriptions of this through these nine verses. Listen in verse 13. He says, prepare your minds for action. He says, keep sober. He says, fix your hope. In verse 14 and 15, he says, do not be conformed. He says, be holy in all your behavior. And in verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves in fear. When you hear all of Peter's instruction, then you get the sense then for us as believers, this is not the time for us just to bank on God's forgiveness at the cross and take it easy in our Christian walk. We have been prepared for action. And we see this sense of urgency beginning in verse 13 with the word therefore. We have to just first talk about then what the therefore is therefore. Well, remember that um, in the previous verses... Peter has addressed in verses 1 to 12 the importance of remembering their great salvation in the Lord. 
They had been chosen by God and had been born again to living hope. And through their Christian experience, um, in that living hope, they'd been, even though it had been, been in a rebirth, there was still this idea that they weren't outside of trials. This Christian experience was still going to uh, have temptations to, to ditch God and so on. And so even, this was, even though this was true, they were not outside of God's will and plan, as this has been a salvation that had been predicted by the prophets long ago. And furthermore, the same gospel that had been given to the prophets through the power of the Spirit was the same message given to the apostles and to those who preached them the gospel in which they received. So these men and women, Peter reminds them, had been truly saved and they had experienced God's great salvation. But Peter wanted them to know that with this great privilege of salvation came great responsibility. They were saved, yes, but it came with great responsibility. And basically they weren't to be so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. Uh, there was a way in which they were to conduct themselves in the world that would bring glory to God. And that's why he says, therefore. So the therefore is in response to this great salvation. So now therefore, here's the way I want you to think and live in this world. Now what's fascinating to me is how Peter understands that if we're going to conduct ourselves in this world in a certain way, it has to begin in your mind. But to control your actions, you have to control your thought life. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and keep sober. Now, some translations you may have the word guard, gird your mind. Does anybody have gird your mind? Okay, one person does. Right? So, when you think of girding your mind, this is like an ancient uh, culture kind of phrase. Basically, it means to like cinch something up or tighten it, like tightening a belt. But primarily in the ancient culture, if someone had like long flowing robes and they were to go somewhere in a hurry, like if they were to run, they were to gird, their, gird up their robes or, so that they wouldn't like trip so they could basically run quickly and get somewhere in a hurry. Uh, this is used in Exodus chapter 12, for example, at the Passover. When, when God went to free the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, his instruction to them was to eat the Passover in this manner with their loins girded and their sandals on their feet and their staff on their hand. So this gives the idea that they were to leave Egypt in a hurry, so they had to get their robes girded up and prepared in that way. Well, Peter now is taking this Jewish symbolism and metaphorically applying it to these believers' thought life. If one was going to conduct themselves appropriately as Christians, they first needed to pull in all the loose ends of their thinking so they could respond to God quickly in obedience and do it in a hurried fashion. Now, Peter continues this thought with the word sober. Now, when you think of the word sober, you're probably thinking right if you're thinking about alcohol and being drunk. Well, the Greek word for sober here is, means not to be intoxicated. <laughs> so you're thinking right if you're thinking alcohol. So these people were not to be intoxicated in their mind. So he was basically simply, he was simply instructing them not to be drunk in their thought lives and not to be mentally intoxicated so that they were staggering back and forth back into their old former ways of life. Basically wanting to fall back into the world that they had been saved out of. Now Peter uses the same word sober in chapter 4-7 and also in 5-8 to encourage spiritual alertness in prayer and resisting the devil. So Peter recognizes how easily Christians therefore can lose their spiritual concentration within mental, with mental intoxication with the things of this world. Now, this world, the world system and its sinful system is actually described many times in the scriptures in different places. But this is a really cool definition of it in, in 1 John 2.15, very familiar to many of you. 
This is what uh, John says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from this world. So simply put then, um, the world is a set of values and ethics established by Satan that secular society lives by and is set up in opposition to God. See, this is important for us to understand, church, because if we're going to live in a way that brings honor to God, we need to rewire our brain in terms of how it thinks. We have to, it starts in the mind if our behavior is going to change. And this is important, too, because our minds are naturally not wired to God's way. That is evident with your children. When they came out, when they were born, at about the age of six months, they started to rebel against you. When you went to change them on the table, and they basically flailed all the place, when you went to put them down for a nap, when they wouldn't, they'd cry and scream and put them down for a nap, they're basically saying, no mom, no dad, life works my way. And it works that way from six months old, about non-work. You never had to train your children to say no to you. You've never had to train them to be a bit disobedient to you. You've had to always train them in, in every aspect of their lives to correct and fix their character because they're hardwired to the world and Satan's system. Yes, they might show signs of humility and gentleness and they're, they're cute and cuddly, but ultimately left unchecked that you will be raised to become hellions on earth. Now this is important because we understand that we're all wired to the, the, the world system. Because if we're going to live victorious lives in our obedience to Christ, Peter tells us our minds have to be transformed. Now, Paul understood this. Paul understood this really well. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, Paul knew that we start off from a place of conformed to the world. And so we are not conformed to God's ways without training. It requires many, many truth encounters in all the areas of life that we're struggling with in order to have victory. Now what's interesting, I want to just talk to you quickly about this, and many of you who know me or have been in sort of like had similar life experiences as me will know this is very familiar to you, but this might be new to some of you. But I want to talk about how God created our brains, not just from, uh, in terms of like, um, not just from the spiritual point of view, but from the biological point of view. You see, this, this actual transformation of your mind and, and preparing your minds for action and keeping sober in your mindset, like Peter's saying, actually is a biological experience. This is a biological thing that happens in your brain. You actually can rewire, just like you could, if, I, if this computer was faulty and it needed new software or needed new wiring and someone could come in and do that, your brain can actually rewire neurologically and biologically change. And I want to read you this from a book called Healing the Broken Brain by a guy named Eldon Chalmers. He was a pastor and a psychologist. Listen to him as he explains the biological process as you renew your mind in Christian truths. He speaks about habits. I remember in verse 14 he says, As obedient children do not be conformed to the formal lusts which were yours in ignorance. So these, these men and women were already had habits of behavior and passions that they experienced before they met Christ. And so, we'll just call those habits, for, for, for lack of a better word. But listen to Chalmers as he explains this. So he goes, so how are habits actually formed in the brain? How are they formed? How do thoughts and words and actions that are repeated over and over again become a permanent part of the brain? 
Today we know that messages are processed in the brain and sent to different parts of the body through nerve cells. Each nerve cell is made up of a center called the nucleus, the surrounding fluid called the cytoplasm, and a boundary called the membrane. Extending from this membrane, many little fibers called dendrites receive messages, and one lung sending fiber called the axon transmits messages to the neighboring cells. Between the sending fiber of one cell and either the receiving fiber or the body of another, there's a space called the synapse. He speaks about this doctrine named Eccles. Uh, while Dr. Eccles was examining the synaptic junction under an electron microscope, he noticed some tiny enlargements on the sending fiber that looked to him like miniature buttons. So he called them boutons, the French word for buttons. Today we know that all these little boutons or buttons are found in different shapes and sizes. We also know that the se they secrete various chemicals. One is acetylcholine. The chemical closes a tiny gap or synapse and stimulates the next cell to send the message on down the line. Brain scientists have discovered that any thought or action that is often repeated is actually building these little boutons on the end of certain nerve fibers so that it becomes easier to repeat that same thought or action the next time. Dr. William Sadler tells us that our established habits then make literal pathways to the nervous system. He reminds us that frequent repetition of the same thought, feeling, or action wears a deeper groove, just as repeated walking over a lawn will wear a deeper path in the sod. So when visiting Dr. Penfield, he told me that his studies of brain stimulation in his patients undergoing open brain surgery have taught him that with each stimulation, nervous tissue responds more readily. Physical changes have taken place in their responding nervous tissue as a result of the stimulation. So here's the point, church. The sobering thought then is that every thought, every feeling, or act of or act repeated in producing physical and chemical changes in our nerve pathways either to bless or to curse us when these changes have been strongly established. Now think of the implications of this fact for our mental or emotional health and our character formation. Every thought or action you do on a repeated note basically strengthens these boutons and creates a literal neural pathway in your brain. These repeated acts in a given course of time become habits. It seems that habits form a regular permanent pattern and pathway in the brain. And habits can be overcome by developing other habits that are stronger than those that a person wishes to overcome. And we can build new pathways in the brain by consciously choosing to make different response to a given situation that we've been used to making. Isn't that uh, incredible? Listen to this final thought. If, um, he says this, could the young, if only the young, could realize how soon they would become mere walking bundles of habits, they would give more heed to their conduct in the plastic state. We are spinning our fates, good or evil, and never to be undone. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's older, he will not depart from it. If you're wondering why you struggle in certain areas of life and seem to have no victories, because just like these people, which is Peter warning about, is you've been conformed to the world and the patterns and the families of origin or other type things, and your brain is not wired to God, it's wired to the world. And Peter has instruction for us today about how to rewire your brain back to the God's ways. It's a biological process, not just a spiritual. It starts spiritually by receiving truth, but the more you think and act out God's principles, they become habits and reform your brain. And people who think, and they go to a pop psychologist, and they think they're going to heal in these counseling sessions, when God's truth is not at the center, there's no chance of victory. None. So what did Peter want these believers to focus on so they could be transformed to God's ways and not conform to the world?
I suggest three things. The transforming of the mind, Peter gives him three motivations. One, to look forward. Look forward in verse 13 at the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Two, to look up. They're to look up at, and specifically verses 14 through 17 at the character of God. And C, or three, I guess you could say, to look back. Verses 18 to 21 at their former redemption, the, the cost of salvation. So let's look at verse 13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting that Peter spoke of grace being a future reality, considering they had already experienced grace in their life. These men and women had received Jesus Christ, they were justified, so they had received His grace. But Peter presents a grace that's way beyond their present Christian's experience. He says there's more grace to come. There's a future grace to come, which is the going to come at the return of Christ. And other passages in Scripture tell us what this looks like. This is when we receive the resurrected body, and this is when we get to be with the present, in the presence of the Lord permanently and receive heaven as a home. But you can see why this present reality for them uh, was dire for them and why Peter told them to change their thinking, to think about the future grace to come. Because if you put yourself in their shoes, they were a persecuted church. They were suffering, they were being rejected by society. Now in situations like that, you would easily become fixated on this world. Right? When you suffer, don't you just sort of like turn inward and think about how this world is letting you down and you often get focused on the other people who are hurting you and so on and so forth? So the potential to compromise your faith in those kind of situations is high. And see, all they had to do to stop suffering was, ditch, was to ditch God. It's true. If you, want to not, if you want to be accepted by culture and accepted by society, just stop being a Christian, stop believing in Jesus Christ, stop thinking His way is right, and you will be eliminated from all your suffering. You'll be accepted and included in society. So, so Peter understands that these men and women have the chance of going back to their former way of life because of the persecution they're facing. And so he says, you guys need a goal. You need a goal to go to because you'll get your mind is by repeating these thoughts, that you, might, that, you're, that you want to go back to the world is not helping going to change your behavior. <laughs> he says, I want to give you a, a new mindset. Think about the return of Christ constantly as a way of motivating you to stay true to your conduct and character. There's a future reward you're going to receive. And that was going to be really important. I want to speak to you kids in here, if you're listening and not playing with Lego. <laughs> But I want to tell you about this because this is something that happens to me. I don't know, my mind is sometimes a curse. To have my brain is a curse. I wouldn't want to give it to you in many, in many situations of life. But in many times it might be a blessing too. And here's what I want to say to you kids. Sometimes I even struggle and want to ditch God and ditch Christianity and have all these desires to go back to my former way of life. I'd be lying to you if I didn't. But you know what I think about? If I'm at a park or something and I'll pick up a little rock that's about this big, and then I'll take it up like to the sky and I look at the entire universe and I like, do a 360 degrees turn and I look at that. My life on this earth of 70 to 80, 90 years is like a rock compared to eternity. My life at 70 years represents a rock. Now when we live here, it feels like forever. But even if I stack up all these little rocks, like forever and ever and ever, and fill the entire sky, it doesn't even give you a picture of eternity. 
And see, and this is the thing, what God's saying, he's saying, you, you, Andrew, like through this imagery, what you're doing is you're remembering that this life is not important compared to what's in store. This life is temporary. I have something greater for you, something eternal for you in the future. And so therefore you need to persevere knowing that this life is just a blip in the sky. And it's really cool, again, when you pull these little rocks and think, that's, that's how much your life matters, or that's how much your life represents compared to the, to the entire universe that you can see around you. And man, did I ever get tempted this week to go back to my former way of life. Jeff, uh, who's not here today, but Jeff and I are coaching this ball hockey team of uh, five to ten-year-olds. And uh, this, little, this little guy in the other team uh, was violently vicious with his stick on three separate occasions and went to intently hurt our little boys. And the father on the other bench was his coach. And he was basically lipping off the referee and got ejected from the game. Can you imagine that five-year-old floor hockey game and dad gets booted out of the arena for lipping off the referee because he was upset at the ref for basically being hard on his boy who was intently trying to hurt all the kids on our team. And uh, going back to my former way of life, which was a life of bullying as a recipient and watching my son be a potential target, I was very... Trust me, my anxiety levels were high and everything in my body wanted to retaliate and basically, to be honest, go over to the other bench, take the other dad and basically, you know, give him a doing, as they say in Scotland. That was the temptation. And everything's going in me. At the same time, like the Lord saying, my fruits of the Spirit, Andrew, are love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and you are to love those who you do not like. You're to love your enemies. <laughs> So you can see how the flesh is rising up and God's saying, no, 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 I've got a better way for you. But I felt better when I turned to Jeff and I looked up and he was behind me and he goes, and he just randomly, I'm thinking this stuff, and Jeff goes, man, does this guy ever test my Christian principles? <laughs> and I thought, awesome, I'm not the only one on the bench here that's struggling with this whole thing. Anyway, so yeah, so what Peter's saying, Andrew, when you want to return to your former lusts, and Jeff, when you want to return to your former lusts, he says, think of the grace to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of the future glory as a way of dealing with going back to your old way of life. Secondly, we're to look up. We're to look up. Look at verses 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We have a couple sayings in our culture when we want to describe someone who's a child that's very much like their parents and their character. Can you think of them? What do we often say when we see a, like a son or a daughter acting like their parent? We'll say, man, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Okay, how about this one? Um, like Father, like... Right. Okay, so we know all these, right? The secular world recognizes that when we see the character of certain individuals, that we, can, that we say, man, they're just like their parents. And we understand why they're just like their parents. Because they came from that family of origin. Peter is just saying the same thing here. And it's interesting, he's using family language to describe our relationship with God. Look at verse 14. As obedient children... Right? And then in verse 17, he says, if you address the father as one. So he's talking family language. You just see yourself as a child, and here's your father, who's your heavenly father, who's God. So what he's saying this is that 
I, we, if you're, we, I want you to be holy simply because your Father is holy. That's why. You're to be holy because your Father is holy. You're to basically be spiritual apples that fall from the spiritual tree. You're to look like your Heavenly Father. And the patterns of your life are to emulate Him. But notice how we're to be like Him. How is His holiness defined? We're not to try to emulate His holiness in terms of His power. We're not to try to emulate His, his, um, Him in terms of how we perform miracles or any even expectation to do so. It's all in behavior. All in our behavior. It's in our moral conduct. Listen to this. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are, pat- we are to pattern ourselves after God in the moral sense. We are to love what He loves. We are to hate what He hates. We are to be passionate about what He is passionate about. And I like what a, a, a commentator by the name of Grudem, Wayne Grudem said. He said, The holiness that Peter is talking about is specifically in the moral sense, where one seeks to separate themselves from sin and dedicate themselves to a life of righteousness. But here's the thing, church. Notice not just in a few areas, in all areas. Do you notice the word all? Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. We don't get to pick and choose as Christians which areas we want to be holy in if we're going to copy and emulate the Lord. This is very reminiscent to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.48. Remember that passage? Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you might be thinking, well, Andrew, that's not possible. It's not possible. God can't possibly expect me to be perfect in obedience in all areas of my life. Well, let me say two things about that. First, nowhere in the New Testament will you find any instruction for any type of tolerance for acts of sin. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says, I know you can't be perfect, so here's the things I'll tolerate in your life that, that, that we'll make amends for. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Secondly, for those of you who are parents, I, you don't even hold that standard for your own children. For those of you who are parents, do you expect your children to be fully obedient to you? Or when you ask them to do something, do you, have you had a conversation prior saying this, you know, I... I, don't, I know we tell you to be obedient, but we don't really mean it. What we mean, actually, is let me define the areas where I'm, you're allowed to actually disobey me. And what we'll do then is when you come to me and say, like, when I go to reprimand you, I'll say, well, did you try at least to be good? And if you say yes, I'll give you a hug and we'll be okay. Not a chance. You and your own child-rearing believe that every act of disobedience needs to be corrected. If you didn't think that you wanted perfection from your children, you wouldn't ask for it in them, and them, and you do. You do. So again, there's, there's nowhere in the Bible that speaks of a level of disobedience that God will accept, and there's no way as a parent you'd accept the same. In fact, there's nowhere in the Scripture that even tells you how long we can go without sinning. Someone might say, I can't even last a day without sinning. Okay, maybe. But Jesus doesn't say... That's, that's the limit he puts on it. Can a person go two days without sinning? Can a person go 60 days without sinning? The Bible doesn't talk about any um, not, like, limit on terms of where, where that fits into the Christian life. And Paul actually himself said in 1 Corinthians 11, Be imitators of me. 
Well, if he was full of sin and just basically like had a morally reckless life, he couldn't say that. But he's saying to the other Christians in the church, I, you can be like me. This is like I copy Christ. And he was okay with that. He wasn't being boastful. He was saying, no, I've come to a place in my life where I've become spiritually mature enough that I can tell people to emulate my moral character and my conduct. Now we have a word in scripture called sanctification, which means being set apart or, or being, mature, being this maturing process as a Christian. So as we grow in our spiritual walk and our relationship with Christ, there should be a, over time a growing obedience to the ways of Jesus that has no limit. Let me say that again. There should be over time as we grow in our faith a growing obedience to the ways of Jesus that has no limit. It's a pattern of life that transforms us every day, every moment, every thought, and in every action. Now, here's the thing, church. God can expect this, but he's not, He also does know that we will sin. He does know it, and so therefore He does have a provision for us if we do, and that's called His grace. 1 John 1, 9, If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. So, but just because He has a provision for it doesn't mean that he, he allows for it. So we have to strive in every aspect of our life to, to strive for perfection and emulate the Lord in every part of our behavior and actions. And so Peter provides additional motivation for the life of holiness he wants him to live by referring to two attributes of God in verse 17. He says, If you address the Father as one who partially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, Peter here uses two different terms to define God. He calls him on one side Father and on one side Judge. So imagine having a coin, right? Two sides of the same coin. On one side, God's your dad. On the other side, he's your judge. <laughs> now, this is amazing because what Peter's saying to the church is this. You have the right to call God Father in prayer. Like he says, if you address the Father as one, I believe that's a reference to a prayer life. So you can go to God in prayer, and, you can, and you're, it's right for you to see him relationally connected to you, which is an amazing thing because in, in that culture, the gods were not relationally connected to you. It's like Islam. Like, uh, Islam, the, the god like Allah is not relationally connected to you. You can't know him personally. He's, he's distinct from you. In, in the Christian God, he's your father, and you can know him intimately. So he's saying you have the right to view him that way, but don't picture him as a heavenly grandfather that looks to spoil his children. If you go to like sin against him and you go to mess about, um, he will judge you. <laughs> He will correct sin in your life and he will and he'll let you know about it. He won't let us go undisciplined and without with any disobedience in your life. God is good at what he does in calling out sins in our lives. And I love this here. He's impartial as a judge. He doesn't care if you're an NHL hockey player in the Stanley Cup playoffs that the world worships and you're a Christian. He doesn't care if you are a homeless person on the street with nothing who's just received the Lord. He doesn't care if you're dying of AIDS and you've come to know Christ. He doesn't care if you're an oil patch executive. If you sin, He judges you fairly and rightly. He doesn't care about the moral standards of how the people view you. He's an impartial judge. He deals with everyone's sin fairly and correctly. And the reason is, is that God cares about His family's reputation. He cares about honoring the family name. Just like you care about that, and that's why you correct your children. He might even say, I've said it to my boys, Dexter boys, don't do that. I want them to understand that to be raised in a Dexter home is a moral conduct in which we live our lives. And God's saying, as, my, as Christians, you honor the family name. You don't do that as a believer. You honor my name. 
Now the result of this, this, uh, this understanding of him being like this loving father, but at the same time one who deals with sin, that means now we're to conduct ourselves in fear. And if, if any of you have experienced this, and I have, and I've shared my story, if you go on habitually sinning and you fall under the hands of a living God, it is painful when you go through that chastening. It's painful. And so if you're in a habitual sin, I, I, I beg you to uh, <laughs> confess it. Because if you keep going, God will, 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 he did it to me, he can do it to you, he'll break you. And David describes his experiences in the Psalms. He talks about his bones being aching and his tears being his food all day long. He's referring to his physical experiences of sinning against God and, and not confessing it. So again... He does it, though, because he loves us. He does it because he loves us. And Hebrews 12 is actually a very um, um, powerful verse here. Listen to this. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there than whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we... Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirit and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. I'll finish with this and move on to the third point. But I want to say I have a shout out to parents. I haven't done a, I haven't done a parenting series for a couple of years. But let's just say this. How you raise your children right now is really important. Because if you teach your children... In your, heaven, in your earthly relationship that you're a father but you're also a judge and don't deal with any sin or you will deal with sin and you're fair in that and you're consistent in that and you're loving on one side but you're, like, you're impartial to sin on the other if you do that you will raise your children to view God in the same way because when they grow up and we say you should fear the Lord they're like oh I know what that means like to fear the Lord because I had to fear you when I was growing up if you are just like if you're slacking your, in your discipline and, but you're also slacking being relational on, on either side of the coin. When you, go to, when you go to teach them about God's ways, when, they, when it comes to sin in lives, they'll likely, um, you'll set the table for them to be rebellious towards the Lord. So how you raise your children as an earthly parent will shape their view of God as a heavenly parent. So I just want to give you um, another word of encouragement to keep pursuing God's ways in terms of how you raise your children. Finally, though, Peter, in terms of renewing these uh, Christians' minds, wanted them to look back. So they were to look forward at the grace to come, look up at the character of God, now they were to look back by remembering the cost of Jesus' death on the cross for their redemption. Look at verses 17 through 19. Actually, I'll start, I'll start at conduct yourselves. He says, Conduct yourselves in the fear during that time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now the word redeemed in, in Greek here that Peter uses is to purchase release by paying a ransom. So to purchase release by paying a ransom. Primarily used describing how someone would per have a purchase price to free a slave from a slave market or a prisoner of war from a camp. So that's how it was primarily used. But Peter, I suggest, is thinking more back to Exodus again in the Passover. Remember when God uh, had them celebrate the Passover? He actually uses the word redemption there. He purchased Israel out of bondage, under the Egyptian pharaoh, and out of slavery through the sacrificial death of the lamb. The final plague 
was per they purchased them out of the land by the Passover, sacrificing the lamb, putting the blood on the doorposts of the house, and they were freed out of slavery. And Peter's drawing on this analogy and this typology to help his listeners understand what Christ did for them and what he did for us. And I want to highlight four spirit or three spiritual truths that he's showing here. First of all, God sees us all being in bondage. He sees all of us as being in the slave market of sin. I mean, I mean in verse 14, he says it fairly clearly. What did this bondage look like? Verse 14, you were conformed to the formal lusts which were yours in ignorance. Verse 18, he says, um, you, were, you inherited a life that was futile from your forefathers. And in chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, he or verse 3, he describes this. He says, you, you were pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable adulteries. Funnily enough, if you go onto a university campus today, or head down to Calgary on a Friday night, you see the exact same lifestyle. doesn't change. Especially if you go to the Stampede this year. Same life living in, our, in our North American culture, same life living back then. So God wants us to see all of us being in bondage, and we're in the slave market of sin. And we all need to recognize this. We need to recognize this, that we're not right with God apart from, from Him redeeming us. So that's the first spiritual truth. The second one is that bondage to sin can only be paid by a ransom. Only by a ransom. Again, in verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your future well as a way of, of life, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. So Jesus had to come and pay our ransom. And this came at an enor enormous cost. Gold wasn't going to pay for it. Precious metals weren't going to pay for it. It was going to require blood. So no, no earthly like um, metals, but human life was the only thing that God would accept as a purchase payment. The only thing that could atone for sin was blood. And the third spiritual truth was a reminder for who this was to benefit. <laughs> who was this to benefit? Well, primarily us. Look at verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, speaking about Jesus, but has appeared in these last times for, for the sake of you. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The cross, of course, was for, was a, for benefit for God in that he, he wanted to be in relationship with us, so this allowed for that to occur. But the primary benefit for the cross, according to Peter here, is this was for you and I. Because you and I would be separated from God, <coughs> still in bondage of sin, without that, without that sacrifice. <coughs> Excuse me. So I want to finish with one final thought for you. How do we often get sucked into falling back into sin, even though we know that God has called us to a life of holiness? I would suggest that if you gave a greater thought to the consequences of sin, rather than the pleasures of it, you might start to have more victory. <coughs> if you start to think of the consequences of sin, rather than the pleasures of it, you would start to have more victory. See, in the world, no one ever talks about the consequences of sin. You know? Think about it. How come nobody tells you that if you have sex before marriage, which is where God designed it for, how come no one ever tells you that um, about the people who are dying in hospital and, or have suffered lifelong consequences from STDs? How come I'm telling you about that? 
How come they don't tell you much about the effects on children of single parents? Or the struggles of being in a blended family? How about they never talk to you about the emotional baggage brought into the next relationship you go to when you go and have sex with multiple partners? How about unforgiveness? How come no one tells you in the world that of the bitterness it breeds? That it, it affects your own health? That you physically can have side effects in your own health from unforgiveness? And how you're basically impossible to have a conversation with because you're so sensitive that every, everyone knows you can blow at any moment because you're so angry? Or even the fact that your depression is caused because of un undealt forgiveness? You know, these are just two examples of, of things that, uh, that uh, can affect the way we think. But again, no one ever speaks about these consequences when we deal with situations in life. But maybe if we start thinking in these categories, it would change again the way we approach, the way we make decisions in our lives. So again, Peter said, I want you to conduct yourselves in a way that represents that you're in relationship with your Heavenly Father. But that's going to start in your mind. You're not just going to start acting that normally. You have to actually get that in your mind. You have to start preparing your mind. It needs to be renewed. And you do so by, by looking up, by looking back, and by looking forward. So I have three lessons for us today. First one is this, which I've just basically said again. But the battle for a victorious Christian life in terms of our obedience is won or lost in the mind. The battle for a victorious Christian life in terms of our obedience is won or lost in the mind. I mean, like Proverbs says, how you think is who you are. He who, how you think is who you are. And again, a lot of times when we're in, in, in going through issues morally, we, start, we just get inward, inwardly focused on the way we approach life. And we have no truth encounters with the Word of God, or very minimal, or we don't know how to apply the scriptures, and so we just get absolutely beat up and crushed. And what's interesting is the next verses from 22, from, from chapter, verses 22 to 2 verse 3, he's going to talk about the role of the Word of God in bringing victory in, life, in the life. Uh, that's like obviously, I think, intentional by Peter right after what he's just said. He knows that the Word of God is going to be central in playing victory and renewing the mind. We have to replace our old habits with new habits. And we can't do that without truth encounters and thinking and living out those in a repeated fashion in order to gain victory. Second lesson. Whenever we are tempted to compromise in our obedience to the Lord, we need to remember to look forward to Christ's return. Look up at God's character as, as holy, father, and judge. And look back at the cost of our salvation. Now, I've shared how I do, I've already naturally, just through my own experiences in life, done two of those things, uh, or at least one of them. I talked about how I always look forward as a way of conducting my behavior. But the one I actually spend the most time on in my own life is looking back. Uh, it doesn't take me much to remember what I've been forgiven for because it was a pretty heinous past. So all I do is look back at those things as a way of motivating me to conduct myself. But if you're in situations where you don't have a healthy understanding of your own sin, and you're more focused on what everyone else is doing and more focused on their sin, you, it's because you have a low view of your own sin in, in, in terms of um, how God looks at you. The cross is for you and me, just like it was for the person that's a perpetrator against you. <laughs> the cross is, is, was uniform right across the board. But again, if we look back at our cost of our redemption, it will change the way we treat others and the way we try to overcome old habits. 
I don't know which one spoke to you the most. If it was looking up, looking back, or looking forward. But I suggest if you want to renew your mind, Peter's giving you practical instruction about things to think on when you want to compromise your behavior in terms of being holy and looking like your father. This is what I'll run and repeat these to you. Or I not repeat, I'll just say this. I was listening to Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll. He's, he's like top, you know, in, in the world of preaching, he's my top three favorite. Chuck Swindoll is phenomenal. He said this on this passage. This, is, this was with his counsel in this passage. He started, he says this, to help you with your brain and rewiring, start each day by renewing your sense of reverence for the God. Right? He's going back to verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth. Swindoll said, start each day by renewing your sense of reverence for God. That you fear Him, that He is a, he's a judge. He's your father, but he's a judge, and he won't put up with any sin that day from you. And he'll come down, and he'll make sure that he's going to make you holy like he is holy. And he'd rather you learn that, uh, he'd rather you learn that sooner than later, so that you can live a life of more like peace. Secondly, Swindoll said, give greater thought to the consequences of sin rather than the pleasures of sin, which we talked about. And third, he said, periodically each day thank God for his forgiveness of you and the relationship you have with him which is again is back to verses 18 forward so Mr. Swindoll in his own studies understood this passage really well final lesson there is no set limit in the Bible for obedience as a Christian to the ways of God but grace is available when we do sin Right? So this idea, well, I can't be perfect, I can't be perfect, and God doesn't want me to be perfect. There's no set limit in the Bible for how obedient we are to be as Christians. There's no set limit. It, 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 we, are, we are encouraged to be perfect, like God is perfect. However, when we do sin, grace is available if we do.